The Athletic. Hello and welcome to From the Rookery End, a Watford podcast brought to you by The Athletic. My name's John and it's, it's pre-season podcast two. Uh, Watford played West Brom on Saturday and you're probably looking at the running time of this podcast going, oh my God, they didn't talk about the game for that long, did they? No, we're not. Do not worry. We will. I was there. So was Adam Leventhal from The Athletic. And we discussed some of the things that went on at the game. But mainly some of the players, uh, particularly the young players. We'll go live to Vicarage Road in, in a minute. We also, of course, this week, big news, huge news uh, for the fashionistas out there. Uh, Watford's new kit came out. And, of course, we'll react to that one. Find out uh, how uh, several members of the FTRE team uh, reacted to the brand new kit. Uh, and also the, the big bulk part of this podcast is an interview that Mike and I did with a, a man called Mike Vince. Uh, and to people of a certain age, uh, Mike's voice will be synonymous with Watford. Uh, particularly uh, if it comes to two things called the Hornet Hotline, uh, which is to the young people a very, very expensive um, phone line. Uh, as well, well, that's what my mum used to tell me it was. Uh, and also he was the voice of uh, the many end-of-season videos that you could get. But he was around Watford for a very, very long time, uh, uh, particularly in the, the golden era uh, of the 1980s. And Mike and I caught up with him a few weeks ago just to sort of talk about those times and to find out about uh, his, his Watford history, really, uh, and what he remembers of the club. It was a time when we were kids and we didn't really know really know what was going on. But that's that's to come. Let's talk about Saturday's game. Again, not in any great depth, uh, but Adam and I were at the game and it was a wonderful atmosphere. It was like being at a cricket ground. There's those moments in pre-season where there's the hubbub uh, of the crowd in the background and uh, it just fills the stadium and it was well basically it was lovely being back in the stadium uh, with other people around you uh, and a game of football. Uh, particularly one player putting on his shirt for the first time. Adam and I gathered outside the ground afterwards to have a chat about what went down. So Adam, we're not going to uh, pull to pieces uh, 90 minutes, not even 90 minutes, so 60 minutes of uh, senior players, but a lot of, lot of under-23s thrown in. Overall though, what can you take from that pre-season game, three weeks out from the start of the season? I know there have been games that have been going on behind closed doors against Colchester and Millwall and this morning as well against against Brentford so it was a bit of a sort of a split squad it felt like the first one didn't it there was a few moments of rustiness but there was also quite a lot to get excited about I thought look there were there were sort of passages of play and you thought if we were in a Premier League game now we'd be getting teared to shreds (laughs) torn to shreds if we if we played like this but there are also things that you thought, right, we've actually, we have upgraded. I think the main thing for me, that the sort of the main takeaway is seeing Cucho Hernandez, just seeing him, yeah. seeing him wearing a, a shirt, being in Watford and seeing what he does, what he's like, how he plays, his personality, which you could see come across as well. I was really, really encouraged by, by seeing him and it felt like... Imagine the whole of last season in particular, the season before that, it was always we're looking to the right, we're looking to the right, we're looking to the right. I know Gerard Delafeu was there on the left before, but this feels like, wow, we've got someone that could actually perform on the left-hand side and be someone that potentially, potentially opponents could worry about. And we're still a little bit of time away from, from the start of the season, but very encouraged by seeing him. It was interesting seeing the back four, there was no Danny Rose. There wasn't any Kiko Femenia. Francesco Ciralta was sat in the in the stands with Christian Cabasele. But then seeing in the, in the midfield, Peter Otebo play with Dan Gosling and and Tom Cleverley from the start. I think he warmed himself. I think yeah. he warmed into yeah. the game, Otebo. So, yeah, so Kuchso was definitely your, my new favourite player. Yeah, Otebo was like, you know, I've, I can see what you're doing. Looks like he warmed up. Yeah. It, it did feel though that during that game that nothing was really going through the midfield uh, it was all it was all on, on width he was like I say when, when he warmed up when he was in the game you know he, he's not a quarterback type uh, uh, anchor man in the midfield but you say all those players missing all those pieces half of them were, were played in the morning we don't quite know what's going on but some of those in, in terms of how that was set up that was, that was three up front do you think that's the one that's it, it felt to me anyway at least that's the one 
that useful for taking players in and out of the system. You know, yes, Ken isn't necessarily a, a third up front, but can be. And we know that Jal Pedro can go out there and it gives us lo- lots more options, I think, to, to play. And that seems, would you, do you feel that is the best step forward in terms of that start to the Premier League with a 4-3-3? It looks as if they, they will probably go with that. But I think the most important thing in the Premier League is to be flexible and to have all those options. And obviously, you can be playing a 4-3-3, but you can sort of drop out of your shape a little bit and be very much like 4-1-4-1. So it's like you don't... It's not always maybe 4-3-3 in the attacking sense and then you can really drop in and get everyone behind the ball. I think it's going to take time. We spoke after the game to, to Dan Gosling and, you know, just touching on the fact that there's been nine or ten new players or however many it is. You know, when you think about it in the context of bringing all those players in, it's going to take time for them to, to bed in, know who each other are, how they play in a stadium in front of fans rather than on a training ground where it's all sort of tippy-tappy and everyone's sort of maybe a little bit sort of a little bit of a step off rather than the intensity of a proper game so it's going to take time to sort of see how things evolve but I think obviously one of the key key elements to the whole afternoon is that 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 midfield if you take out you know Nathaniel Shalabar who seemingly is struggling with it with an injury in addition to the to the contract situation and also Will Hughes, which is seems to be a pure sort of contract situation. It's, it's very sort of uncertain at the moment. It shows that there is still some strengthening to be done in that midfield and opportunities to be taken. And a lot of people will maybe look at that game and think, hang on a minute, God, they really need to do some work. But if you have Imran Luza in there who played in the morning, you could have a, a Joao Pedro in there or you could maybe like have Kucho Hernandez in there if you, if you wanted to do that. So there's lots of flexibility, and I think it will just take, as I've said about three or four times already in this answer, it will take a little bit of time to, to work out the shape of this side and how it will operate best. And even once we get into the season as well and see how how they deal with Premier League opposition and trying to figure out and trying to decipher dealing with an opponent and at the same time being an attacking threat. So there's lots to sort out. Yeah, and I think you're right, I, that feeling into this game normally when you come to figure drove for a pre-season game it's the week before but actually it's still three weeks yeah. away we've now got yeah. two more home games we've got a game against Stevenage there's plenty of time but the, the really interesting part for me um, is that how many young players got a, a bit of a, a bit of time one in particular played over 90 minutes on the pitch at least Messina went off uh, injured very early on struggled off but was, was walking uh, and on comes number 17 or as announced trialist yeah. why by the way why do they not just name them why, is it, why can't they name in these preseason games that they are you why don't call them Joe Bloggs who is a trialist well and I, I obviously did a piece yeah. for the athletic recently about about trialists and I mean there was a couple of interesting situations on on how how it's approached it does throw up silly situations whereby you know John Marks who was doing the stadium announcement has to say a trialist but then I was sat at Bromley the other day where it was a, an under 23 game and the commentator was commentating on trialist so could, would have to say trialist trialist this trialist that and it, it's just a it's a funny thing but the, the background to it obviously I'm sure a lot of people will, will realize you know clubs want to protect players that they don't have on their books already so for sake of argument if you had a real hot player that you didn't want anyone to know was there and he was playing in a behind closed doors game you can protect that identity because you know you can then go right okay brilliant no one's no no one knows but where it falls down is where you have busy bollocks like me or you have trialists played in front of a crowd where either it's, you know, you've got their parents watching or their friends watching and they set tell someone and then someone else tells someone. Yeah. It only works to a certain level, doesn't it, to, to try and sort of have that anonymity. But on the trialist that we're talking about, he is, he is um, someone that I'd written about in that article yeah. for The Athletic where I looked at all the, the trialists. I went to the game against Chesham, went to the game against um, Bromley, and I just worked out who all these trialists were. One of them is James Morris, who was released by Southampton. He'd been there for a number of years, played through all the academy sides, but got released, had come on a trial with with Watford, and has actually featured a couple of times in first-team games behind closed doors. Very sort of composed, young, cool, calm, left-back, doesn't do anything silly, but is prepared to get forward, but looks comfortable with his, you know, facing facing the goal as well. Came on, slotted him well, threw in a couple of great crosses, 
looked a real yeah. danger and it, it felt and uh, you know just skipping on from from james morris who we understand has been offered a contract and it by all accounts is going to sign i'm sure the agent will probably pop back into the office <laughs> when they're nailing it down and go yeah you know that guy that just came on who was bloody brilliant yeah should we just maybe just pop an extra zero on or whatever it is or an extra 50 quid you know being at the game today and seeing the side that ended it felt like there was almost like a little bit of a statement being made okay i know that it was probably nothing more than we just need to limit our first team players minutes he's going to play 60 we'll throw on a a youngster he's going to play 70 we'll throw on a youngster blah 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 blah. but i had a warm feeling at the end of it Yes, these guys might not be the future. They might not be players that go on and have long, you know, illustrious careers at, at Watford. But just seeing that side, bar two older gentlemen, you know, Joshua King and Rob Elliott, particularly older in goal. They're really dragging up the average age <laughs> yeah. by quite a distance. Yeah, they really ruined that, didn't they? <laughs> but seeing that, seeing them play at Vicarage Road, sunny day with, you know, kids and families in the, in the stands once again, I felt... That, I, I really, I really enjoyed seeing that as a, as a spectacle, and also they did, you know, a lot of them did bloody well. Yeah, they, they all have had a positive, you know, experience of, of playing with, you know, with with first team players. Because that was the moment for me. The one thing I wanted a bit more from it was we saw Dapo Mabude, uh, who came on at half time, uh, and he got a little bit longer with senior players, and it would be interesting to sort of see maybe over the next couple of weeks when there are, you know, they're going to be playing more first team players for, for longer that they might sort of get those opportunities but you always hope you know they're the, they're the guys and if you if you saw them personally now if I, I saw them as the bulk of the Carling Cup or League Cup team come the second round you wouldn't be actually that worried about it as I said it's not it's not one to sort of get too carried no. away with but it was just nice it's all part of the rich tapestry of becoming a, a professional league playing you know potentially Premier League playing footballer as well and I just think you know that that was great in particular James Morris who by all accounts uh, you know his family his family were watching uh, in the stands he comes on he's effectively Watford's third choice left back I highlighted in the article which I, I recommend people read obviously naturally I wrote it and I want you to read it but it just gives you a bit of an insight into the players that have come in into this new academy structure who are being given an opportunity to be part of the under-23s, not someone that's going to come in and block a path, but who might have potential. So if they can pick up James Morris, for example, and he can be third choice, play the majority of his games as an, an under-23, but can be there and step in, as you said, in the, in the League Cup or the FA Cup or whatever, if need be, then great. But then he may well have a resale value by the end of a year or a year plus an option or whatever his final contract is going to be and that's where you get a bit of value out of having your academy not only having a pathway all the way through into the first team but having a bit of resale and we saw that with some of the loan deals that have come out with Tiago going off to Doncaster and also Dan Phillips going off to Gillingham playing league football league one football go and show people what you're what you're about then you'll have scouts watching other players going oh who's he right oh he might be suitable for another team in the Premier League or another team in the Championship all that sort of stuff they seem to sort of be moving in the right direction it's nice to see it it evolve the very first minute we we get access again to, to Vicarage Road actually seeing this working they've got a long way to go and there's been some bumps in the road this summer losing some academy players like Boson Lawal and Tom Galvez who was another left back there are small steps in the right direction happening in terms of the supporting cast for the first team but obviously our, our main focus is the, yeah. the big first team players but you say supporting cast is that is that what the under 23 is about because i think everyone loves the idea and what we're used to everything's you know since the 80s of graham it's about young players coming through being first team players we haven't seen that and it isn't necessarily a hundred percent about that um you know when we spoke to scott duxbury he sort of said it's about that that academy embracing young players football players in watford that might lead to first team. But actually that under-23s team, which is almost like the, the pinnacle of the academy, they're there to... To what exactly? Is it to, to make that step or is it just to... Is it a, is it a slow journey, a waiting journey for them to, if maybe these things break and they do get that chance? It's, a, it's the next step. that it, you, You're going to have to have a certain amount of players 
playing under 23 football who want to prove the fact that they deserve to get a a loan move, a development loan move potentially, or that they can, because they're still in the building rather than out on loan, step into the first team if needed. And you've seen a great example. Yes, he was a, a trialist, but James Morris, that, that is perfect. Right, imagine Adam Messina was playing because Danny Rose was injured. He would have been on the bench. Look, they might sign another senior left back for all yeah. we know, and it, it, this might be, all be hypothetical. But he, he steps in, does well. They go bingo that's what it's all about that that's why we have an under 23 team that's why we have this little pool of players that can step up and getting that quality up and getting the standard up is what Watford need to do obviously it's not a category one academy that might be something that they do in the future it might not but they need the players in that group to be competitive to be determined to be like even if they're 18 19 year old to be the best 18 19 year olds around if they can to then be pushing first team players potentially to have someone like a imagine if Joao Pedro was English you go oh yeah he's got to, he's got to play in the team obviously he's not he's from Brazil and we paid loads and loads of money for him but it would be great if we could start to get some 18 19 year olds like this trialist James Morris coming into the team and going all oh, right he's, he, he can actually do a job I've obviously got a little bit carried away with James Morris. You can you can you can tell, but he was a very sort of yeah, very composed. Absolutely. You know, he did, he did his job. He did what it was asked. And also, I've been speaking to people lots of times, like over the years. Being a fullback, yes, it is it is tricky, but it's not the most complicated thing. It's not it's not the most complicated job. So if you can get in there, do your job, protect your two centre halves, give the ball to the fancy winger on either the left or the right. Just do your job. Don't make it too complicated. And that's exactly what he did. But he also overlapped as well. So he showed he can do he can do both things. And the overlapping bit always shows me the confidence. Yeah. And, and that's the thing you want to see. And it was, I say, a very confident performance from Watford. The result doesn't really matter. It was nil-nil. On to the next pre-season game. From the Rookery End, a podcast about life following Watford FC. Yeah, Kucho really did stand out. And as Adam said, his personality really shone through. Very cheeky. There was a really audacious bicycle kick during the game, during the first half. Another one where, I, quite, I don't know what the plan was, but he was sort of crouched down and it looked like he was a bit, you know, maybe injured or something. And the referee said, are you okay? And he went, yeah, 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 I'm fine, fine. But obviously, shut up, he ran. It was almost like some sort of set play. It didn't work and I sort of like the fact it didn't work because you need to save those amazing set plays for the Premier League and uh, that's what will get you famous and, and on match of the day. So I, I'm expecting some very cheeky things to come out of uh, Cucho Hernandez uh, this coming season for Watford. But fantastic game and great to be back at Vicarage Road. Many fans at Vicarage Road, yes, they were wearing the brand new kit and it was released with a very flashy YouTube video which was released at 9am on Thursday morning and, uh, well, we, we, uh, we had to get... Two sides to this, no, or me knowing there'd be two sides. This who lo- who like it, and those who you know maybe aren't quick to fall in love with a football kit. That man in the from the Rookerian team is Mr. David Cameron Walker, DCW as we know him. I got him to uh, not watch and look at Twitter. He sat down. He had the YouTube video in front of him. He pressed record, and this was his reaction. But just to sort of understand where he is. Let's first find out from DCW how he's felt about some of the recent football kits Watford have had. I've not been a huge fan of them. Basically, and I might, maybe this, you know, feels like it's an increasingly sort of old school, old fashioned opinion. I don't know. I just want my Watford shirts to be yellow. I want it to be bright, bold, yellow that's what to me Watford is it's what they were always wearing when I was growing up the home shirt was by and large mainly yellow it was bright and the other thing I would like to see but I think this is even I realize that this is probably asking too much in this era is I want red shorts and I know that's a whole nother debate that we shouldn't probably get into now but I do want more red the red has been marginalized I think in in recent seasons and it's just been this the move to having the stripes or the halves or, you know, that sort of small horizontal stripes of the first season up in the Premier League last time round. You know, they're they're very much leaning into putting more black into the shirt, leaning into the Hornets sort of image. And I get that. It's probably smart marketing. They obviously wanted to change the badge to a Hornet or whatever. So look, I understand it. It works from, from that level. I'm not that hopeful. 
I've seen some of the leaks or whatever, but we don't know whether they are going to be true. So, okay, look, let's load it up now. John has sent me the YouTube link to the video, the video reveal that they will have posted already on the site. So here we go. Come on, Watford. Come on. Come on, don't let me down. Okay. Cisco getting out of a car. It's a lively start, walking into the ground. Oh, here we go. Oh, okay, right, I've seen it. Quite a lot to unpack here. First things first, the sponsor. Steak.com. Not as bad as I thought it would be, actually. It's obviously, again, they're still going for the the sort of black and yellow stripes thing. I think that seems very much to be here to stay. So I'm going to have to get used to it. There's Christian Cabaselli. Local man is pleased. Um, again, not the yellow, not quite as bright as I'd like it from just from the video here. Looks a bit lemony. But that might just be the lighting in the video. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt on that one. And what the hell are they doing? Ben Foster dicking around with the bloody printer. Zinkenagel's in the video. Does that mean he's staying? Is Troy looking good? Not really getting much of the kit here. Just Cisco trying to get into the ground. Oh, for God's sake. Fabrizio Romano's popped up. Right, I'm going to pause this video just so I can actually look at the kit. Because... I'm getting lots of images of them walking around the stadium. Is Cisco about to buy a hot dog? Yeah, get on with it, lads, all right. There we go. William Trustecon reclining in the in the stands. Give me a good look at it. Okay, so I'm going to focus on the positives. Things I do like. I like the collar. I like the sort of V-neck collar with the little bit of material at the bottom of the V. I like that. That's quite nice. I don't mind the sponsor. When I saw the sponsor talk of this new sponsor yesterday and I saw their website I thought oh that font their sort of company font isn't going to look good on a shirt but actually actually I don't I don't mind it I think the way they've done it with the sort of yellow outside the the black outline is is quite nice I'm not a huge fan of the design really the sort of graded black horizontal stripes which sort of fade from fade into a, into a more bold bold colour. I I just want yellow. Just give me yellow. The most the most favourite shirt of mine of recent seasons was the was the 14-15 promotion season under under Slav. That Puma shirt, really, really simple, nice yellow, nice collar. We even wore red shorts a few times. So maybe one day, maybe it'll take for the Pozzos to leave for me to finally get my dream of Yellow shirt, red shorts, back again. But uh, I don't, I don't want the shirt or the shorts that much. Please don't go, Gino. So we'll take it. We'll move on. I'm sure I'm going to be wearing it just the same as, as most other fans come 14th of August when we're at home to Aston Villa. So there we go. Come on, you Orns. How much is it? We're the Orns. You're the Orns. Come on, you Orns. Thanks, DCW for his uh, reaction to the kit, but we were all waiting for one reaction to this kit. And it was, of course, Arlo. Mike's surname is Parkin, and he has a son called Arlo. And this is our feature, Michael Parkinson. All right, Arlo. Hello. How are you doing? Good. So it's still pre-season. One of the big things, of course, in pre-season for Watford is the launch of the new kit. We've seen the home kit. You've just seen it. What are your thoughts? It's really really good i think it is one of the best i think as the season goes on people might get a little bit tired of it but i think they'll still like it but at the same time i can't see like older people wearing it i can really see like from 20 down why is that because of the design i think it just goes very well on youngsters okay well luckily watford have got a, a young squad this season how do you think it compares to the to the other kits, perhaps the other kits we've had in the in the Premier League, where do you rank it? Where do you rate it? I think it would go second. I'm going to put when we got to the FA Cup final. The stripes. What I really liked on it, on the yellow bit, you could just see the black sewn onto it, and I thought that was like I thought 
that they, they've done that on purpose. So the little details, yeah. you're like, all right, lovely. So you're pleased with the kit. You rank it second out of Watford's Premier League kit, so that's pretty high. Let's give it a mark out of ten. Nine. Nine and one quarter. Nine and one quarter. Well, well done, Kelme. That is praise indeed. Cheers, Arlo. Bye. That's how people are feeling. But let's find out a bit more about this kit. I got onto the shelves of the Hornet shop and uh, everything that went into it by having a chat to Adam, who wrote an article all about it this week. So, Adam, you did a very deep dive onto this kit. It feels like they've already designed next, se- next season's kit already, where they were. It was quite a, I don't want to say elaborate, but it was quite a rigorous uh, process to get that kit on that video on Thursday morning. The, the article that I wrote obviously had two elements to it. it obviously discussed the, the issue about the sponsor, and we can, we can talk about the finances of that. Some people won't be happy with it. Some people aren't that bothered about it. I get both sides of the story. But in terms of the actual process of, of bringing a kit, you know, people will look at it and come into the Hornet shop and go, no, I don't like that one, don't like that one, and just sort of see it as just a garment that yeah. has just been designed over the last couple of weeks. The, the complexities and the logistical considerations of getting a kit ready for August and having to get it finalised by sort of November, getting the feedback, especially on the Kelme kits, which they'd only had on the players' backs for two or three months to try and work out what they would like to change about the fabric and all this sort of stuff, to then sign it off by November 2020, to then have it on the hangers by August 2021. I found it really, really interesting. And also, you then have all the the, the COVID difficulties, which affects not only how you then you know interact with the designers, you have to do everything on Zoom, you can't go and visit China, but also the shipping and the cost that, that's related to all of that sort of stuff. I'm sure people that are into kits will enjoy the piece. And just to learn a little bit more about how far off things start and the fact that, yeah, they're already starting to think, right, now we need to get plans in place to get the 2022-23 kit signed off by this November. So if you want to enter and put your designs forward, you've got to get it in really sharpish. So it's summer holidays, if the kids want to do some kit designing, I know I used to do that quite a lot, then it's the time to really get involved as soon as you can. Um, But of course, the the sponsor thing being a big deal, the important thing I suppose for the football club was the, the value of it. Especially at this time, I saw Sheffield Wednesday launch their kit this week, no sponsor, Um, Wrexham. They've got the Hollywood owners involved. They've got TikTok. You know, it's always this big thing. But there's a lot of betting sponsors in the Premier League uh, on shirts. Um, but Stake, the new one, you know, they were able to, to offer what the club need at this point financially. That's the big thing. The, the bottom line is king at the moment. When you've made a 30-odd million pound loss in your last accounts, you know, you will be speaking to your sponsorship department or whatever and going, right, well, we need to try and claw back some of this money if we can. And and yes, the companies that are offering the, the big amounts of money are betting companies and they are not a lot of people's favorite companies i've previously worked at sky we were big linked to to skybet this podcast itself is sponsored by bet365 my personal opinion is there's too much of it i'm not a big fan of it that is a that is something that i think it's grown too much i don't like my kids sort of asking questions about seeing betting ads when they're watching it on on tv all the time so i understand why people are upset about having stake.com slapped significantly very very largely yeah. i mean you're stood here in your old school um 1984-ish um shirt with solvite across the uh, the top across this sort of subtly yeah. subtly part yeah. of the design i mean stake.com is is literally smacking you in the face with a big stake <laughs> but i get it they were able to offer more money up front and it could even get more and more and more depending on how well Watford do. The, the, the details are in the article. So I understand the whole sort of controversy to it. But also, you know, sort of within the piece, it's, it's touched upon. If you look at the Norwich situation, they, they were going to get into bed with a, with a similar betting company. It didn't turn out right because of the, the way that they were promoting the, their products not in this country but but away from this country and it wasn't it wasn't appropriate so they then stepped back and and had an existing partnership with lotus already but they lost out on around about three million pounds so if you put it in that context right three million pounds would i rather have three million pounds and be able to spend it on buying or paying for josh king over the next five years yes i would 
And if you are in the situation where you wholeheartedly disagree about having a betting sponsor, then you can still do that. But I would then check what you're saying when you're complaining about the club not spending enough money on that player or this player or missing out on that player because the negotiations came down to one, two or three million pounds. So it's it's a very, very complex thing. I understand both sides of the story, but there is also one key thing which is very important at the at this time. The fact that it's allowed to happen now. Yeah. They're not doing anything wrong now. It may well be that this is the last hurrah for betting companies. Yes, you can get your moral compass out. Should we make this choice? Should we not? Or should we take the money whilst we can? They've chosen the latter, and I, I can understand why they have. A Watford FC podcast brought to you by The Athletic. This is from the Rookery End. Remember, you can subscribe to The Athletic to read all Adam's articles, the, the one about the kit, the one about all the, the trialists and, and everything he sort of spends his week writing about by going to theathletic.com forward slash rookery end. Uh, currently a 30% discount. That's about three forty nine a month. And uh, you can get that now by going to theathletic.com forward slash rookery end. Plenty to come from Adam between now and the beginning of the season and, of course, throughout the entire thing. Lots of in-depth stories about Watford Football Club, not just what's happened and who we signed. A man who used to do a lot of reporting uh, on Watford was Mike Vince. As I said earlier on, Mike was the voice of Watford for, for, uh, for many years. Mike and I caught up with him uh, to find out a little bit more about those 20, almost 30 years he had of covering Watford. Born in Watford and a season ticket holder in the Shrodale stands in the 1970s, Mike ended up being the voice of Watford. And so when Mike and I spoke to him, we started to find out what life was like for a Watford supporter before two men turned up, Graham Taylor and Sir Elton John. There were good days and bad days. Everybody used to have a sense of gallows humour. Occasionally things went very well. More often than not, they went very badly. But you knew that everybody was trying their hardest. The, the fact of the matter was Watford was just another one of the lower division clubs. They were trying to do what they could with the money that they got available. They had a nice fan base, which was more than some of them. But again, fan base, however good it is, you've got to attract the players. And it was hard. It was very hard. And then, then there was a famous afternoon uh, when Mike Keane was the manager and Trevor Spencer was the referee. And we ended up with nine men when Guy Mentis and Mays were both sent off early on. And that was the trigger that finally, I think, uh, people realised enough's enough. Elton arrived on the scene and the rest is history. So as a supporter, Mike, what, what are you thinking when first Elton John arrives, you know, obviously pretty well known, and then Graham Taylor from Lincoln? What was, what was the feeling amongst the supporters with those two guys coming in? Well, I think everybody wanted and got very early an indication that this wasn't just a bit of fun for Elton. Mm. You think of some of the football these days, the VIPs and, 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 and mega stars who are attracted to football clubs and then basically just use it as a status symbol. Elton was there because he desperately wanted it to work and they went and got the man who was unquestionably the rising star in the manager's ranks. Graham had had to retire early. I mean, it was one of the great standing jokes, wasn't it? Graham had played twice against Watford, most famously when his side lost 7-2. And I used to joke about it, fact he was a passable left-back. You could pass him on the left or you could pass him on the right. <laughs> and it didn't go down very well um, when at one particular dinner he was introduced to Stuart Scullion who asked for his autograph. Scullion having scored four and made the other three on a famous afternoon when Grimsby <laughs> lay in seven. You know, this is your Watford history. Who was your favourite manager? I know, I'm assuming the, the answer to that is, is Graham. You were there at his absolute peak. What, what was it like with, with Graham? It's very hard a question for me to answer. I, I've worked with a, any number of managers and they all had different qualities and they all had different characters and they all inherited a, a very different ship. The thing about Graham was he wasn't the team manager. He was the club manager. You know, he was involved in absolutely everything. But the charisma of the man was just frightening. So charismatic. Literally arrived, you know, was hammering home the message, making sure that the players got the message and went out and, and acted on it. And the only way to do that was to lead from the front. You know, one of the things I did in the very early days, and it was great fun. But you, you pinch yourself now and you think, did it really happen? was for about five or six years. We had a family enclosure Christmas party and these kids were competing in three-legged races with the likes of Blissett and Barnes and, mm -hmm. and people like that. 
But what it did for the relationship between the football club and the community, you will run out of superlatives to describe. And on that basis, that obviously things started to happen on the football field. You mentioned you and you and Graham arrived at almost at, at, at the same time. Just for those of, of people listening who weren't aware, what was your role at Watford at that time, Mike? I was a supporter. I was just literally was a season ticket holder first. I was a season ticket holder. And then I was invited to do a couple of commentaries for Hospital Radio, which was a wonderful opportunity. I'm a friend of mine persuaded me to talk to them. As it so happened, the most of the regular members of the team decided they weren't going to go because it was going to be a wasted evening. The second game I ever did was a game against Southampton. <laughs> and you know what's coming, don't you? <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I started to do a bit of that. I got It's a way into broadcasting that I still recommend to people now, even not people who are necessarily into sport and into football, but people who talk to me about they want to be a newsreader or they want to be a presenter. It's a wonderful breeding ground for people to go out and, and get the experience, which is so crucial. And then I was lucky enough to get involved with Chilton Radio when it started. First, just doing the Watford matches, but then it got rather more serious around about sort of 1982, 83. I got a job on the full-time staff at Chilton. I had to do other things as well. I mean, I was reading the news. I was doing the traffic reports. I was doing all sorts of things. But obviously, my main job was to cover Watford home and away. And that was at the time when, you know, Watford was starting to scale the heights on a regular basis. Yeah, they say timing is everything. Starting to get involved with Watford around 82, 83. Seems like a pretty sensible career move in my book. <laughs> well, all I would say about it is that the Graham was the most incredible boss. I was lucky... Also, I will always be in debt to Ollie Phillips at the Watford Reserver for all his help and support. And Graham was just an amazing boss, but I did laugh because I'd been there. I think Graham probably realised after a couple of months I was going to be staying around. Mm. In fact, it was my hometown club, and he introduced me to his father, and his father had been Mr Scunthorpe United for, for years and covered Scunthorpe home and away and, and, and basically written for the local rank, almost like sort of the Ollie Phillips of Scunthorpe. And, and Tom, bless him, said to me one night, he said, you have any trouble with him, you ring me. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was Graham like, Mike, with, with members of the press? Obviously, there was yourself and, and Ollie, very, very close to the club, very, very knowledgeable, very well respected. What was, the, what was that relationship like? Oh, it was terrific. And, you know, he, he would always make time because he knew we were doing the job and we were trying to get the message across. But the big difference was that Ollie very much worked with Graham. I saw my role as also not only working with Graham, but working with some of the players and the, and the senior players in those days. were sort of almost the first generation who you would actually put in front of a microphone. I was very lucky, obviously, the likes of Luther and Ian Bolton and, and people like that. They were very articulate guys. They were really the first generation of players who had anything more to do with a microphone than just the very occasionally on a Saturday. Because let's remember the era I'm talking about. There was no live football. Live football a bit on the radio. You know, Sky hadn't been thought of. Uh, and the only time a live game was shown was the FA Cup final. And then that little um, local difficulty involving Hadrian's War when England played Scotland in what was then what the Home International Championship. Those were the two live games shown in the entire year. With players being put in front of the press mic do you think it was that a an idea that graham had one of the many ideas he had you know he obviously made sure that they they were active in the community and we know those sort of stories but do you think he was perhaps a bit of ahead of his time in terms of forging relationships between the players and and the press well i think also you've got to understand that this was really the first generation who'd had local radio when children radio started it was the first local radio station that covered watford and I'm not just talking about Watford in terms of football. I'm talking about Watford in terms of the town. It was far more therefore specialised than some of the stations in London that had been going for a few years. Even then, they hadn't been going a long time. The likes of Capital Radio, but obviously Capital had to cover Arsenal, Tottenham, all the London clubs. You know, I worked for three years. Well, I was still covering Watford, but I worked for LBC in the days when they had Sports Watch on a Saturday and they had 13 match reporters out and about covering the London clubs. Obviously, Chilton Radio didn't have that. It had initially um, Watford and Luton and was able to therefore to devote far more of its on-air time and resources to the covering of the two clubs. I started watching Watford properly in the sort of late 80s, sort of 86 because of my age. But I know, obviously, in my mind what happened 
during that amazing period. What was it actually like behind the scenes? Can you sort of give us a, an idea of what it was like to, to live it and breathe it and to see behind the curtain? Because, of course, there's not much footage that, and, and stuff like that because there, there wasn't social media and there wasn't the, the, all, all the TV cameras that there are now. What was it actually like being at Vicarage Road at that, at that amazing time? It was incredible. But the other thing to, to remember is that inevitably we lived in an era where the, you know, the, it was the goals that were taking Watford up, the Blissett and Barnes and Jenkins and all that. But, you know, we'd got the brother of an Olympic medalist in goal and we'd got the likes of Ian Bolton and, and Steve Sims and people like that. But we'd also, and this was what really mattered to Graham, we'd got the first generation of the kids coming through the ranks. You've got your Kenny Jackets, Gibbsy. All right, Barnsley was in there. Then you've got Ewan Roberts and people like that. And that was the thing that really started to make Watford stand out. He almost got the old guard to get Watford through the divisions, go the fourth and they go and win the third. The first season and the second was a bit of a wobble, but I suppose that was inevitable. Three years in in League Two, and then you hit League One, and then the blind me in the first season in League One, you qualify <laughs> for Europe, you beat Liverpool on the final day, and you finish second. And then that led into Europe and the Cup final. You got to go to all these games in your Watford history. What was your favourite away trip? Well, it's very hard to, to, to say what your favourite away trip was. I mean, Villa Park in the semi-final was extraordinary. And obviously it was quite a challenge for me because I knew that I had the chairman lying on a bed in the south of France listening to my commentary before <laughs> he went on stage that night. They will say pressure is for tyres, I beg to differ. But you can't, I could write a book about, you know, the European adventure. You learn so much as, as as you as you go along. I think everybody was quite pleased when in Europe that we went to West Germany to start with. We went to Kaiserslautern. We didn't get drawn away somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And then, of course, the second round took us to the days when it was still the old style Bulgaria. You know, we all had to have visas and, and everything else. And the Bulgars set fire to the terraces when Wilf Rostron scored the winner. And then without... Out. Well, you don't expect a little Will Frost and a four foot six to head the winner, do you? And then we went to Prague, which was to this day, and I've been extremely lucky in my in my life to commentate all all over the world. The coldest night bar none was in Prague, um, where the Prague people decided that because I was doing a live commentary, I couldn't go where all the press went, which was in a glass proof area where you could look out from undercover and so they put me with the television cameras under the roof and it was minus five at kickoff and it didn't get any warmer after about 20 minutes my pen had frozen solid that, that whole europe that whole european trip the, the, those three three rounds obviously that watford were, were in kaiserslautern spartak and then, and then prague they are absolutely fascinating for me and i'd I think it's probably the one thing left for me as a Watford supporter. I'd love to go on a European trip to see my beloved team in action. That that Kaiserslautern trip, what what was that like? You know, getting your passport, getting a ticket, knowing you're going into Europe. Was it as exciting as I'm imagining? It was, and I was actually, I mean, some of us, we actually flew, they, Watford chartered a plane and we flew with the team. And the Kaiserslautern people were, were very warm and friendly. And in those days, they actually had their own wine. But uh, one of the sort of the great memories for me was, you know, for me this was huge because it was my first ever game in Europe as a as a commentator. You know, I was thinking of all the people back home who were sort of hanging on with everything I was saying. So you sit in the hotel the night before, you just have a, a little bit of something to eat and, and do a couple of hours homework. And the great tradition that, which still goes on in Europe is that if you get involved in a European competition, the home directors entertain the visiting directors the night before the game. It still goes on. And of course, the Kaiserslautern directors were in shock because they'd been invited when the second leg took place at Vicarage Road to a barbecue at Elton's the night before. So how were they going to match that? Well, I do remember that uh, it was quite interesting. I had to hold the lift for a couple of the Watford directors as they came back, clearly having had a good night. And there's me sitting there thinking that we've got this big football match tomorrow. But we got thousands of them. But the best one, I suppose, was was being in Bulgaria because we'd only drawn the home leg and, and we'd got injuries coming out of our ears. It produced um, a moment of brilliance from Graham, who took the pressure off by putting a personal advert in the Times newspaper. 
and it, the advert read many vacancies now at a football league club for players no previous experience required able to work on Saturdays preference given to applicants with two arms and two legs in good working order apply to G Taylor at Watford Football Club Absolutely and anyway amazing. the number of people who he Graham in this memorable interview said to me said I've got a number of people here who've applied they all want to play with my players so we went to Bulgaria it went to extra time it was very late and we chartered a plane from Luton which flew us all out but it couldn't fly us all back because Luton was fog bound and so there we were on the most almighty high at about one o'clock in the morning in Manchester airport being entertained by Steve Harrison and I'm afraid it was the one time although I'm supposed to stay out of all of it I couldn't resist my piece the next morning talking about Watford's greatest triumph and said and wasn't it typical that Luton had sabotaged Watford's finest hour? <laughs> <laughs> Which, fair, in fairness, David Pleat, well, I got on well with because with my job when I was sports editor at Children, I had to. But David, I, I loved, and David's a thoroughly decent man. He described it as a professional foul, he said, but when the, when it's an open goal, not even you can miss. <laughs> <laughs> Tremendous. Uh, but then, unfortunately, the, the Prague scenario, it was just a, a game too far. But we learned so much. But it's unforgettable. And I, I mean, I've been around the world since and I went back to Kaiserslautern about 15 years ago to do a game. They still remembered the Watford visit and saying, you know, Watford were different because they were actually enjoying it because it wasn't something they did every season. What about your favourite player? Again, you, you got the access to all of them and you, you, know, you get to know them you know, far better than any fan could. You had to say about the players is uh, the one thing that, that annoys me these days is when people don't realise that these players are human beings first and they are players second. And for that reason, you've got to treat them as, as human beings. I was very lucky to, you know, some of them that I dealt with, I'm still mates with an awful lot of them. Helgerson was a complete one-off. He completely mesmerised me because he was, this was the, the player that Graham bought. Everybody was thinking about Graham spending money and, you know, because this was the Watford was the club where, you know, you would bring them through the ranks at every opportunity. You just look at all those centre forwards. I mentioned you and Roberts, you know, and, and, and there were several others. And Graham goes and spends a million on this Icelandic who? Because let's face it, when, when he said he'd signed um, Helgerson, everybody thought, who? And he turned out to be the best value for money signing I think any football club has ever had. He went out there and died for the place. He went out and died for the shirt died for the supporters. His debut match against Liverpool, I've never seen a better debut match in my life. Even when the finances got all wrong and, and Ray Lewis was saying that Helgerson, he said to him, look, I've got a problem and uh, in terms of reading your contract. And Helgerson said, don't worry, we'll sort it out. He <laughs> died for that football club and, and he was without doubt the greatest ambassador for an overseas country that I've ever come across. Even if it took him 15 seconds longer then it took Johan Goodmanson to get on the phone after that famous uh, Roy Hodgson defeat for England. Uh, Goodmanson beating <laughs> by 15 seconds to the phone. That, that's interesting, Mike, that you mentioned Hyder as uh, uh, one of the, uh, the at the forefront of the, the the playing group at that time. Because he, but you talk about him as a role model as well. Yeah, and he loved the supporters. He had a, he had a shocking season, not through his own fault under Viali, and but he still had enough gallows humour in him to come up to me towards the end of that season, can you do me a favour? And I said, well, what's up, mate? He said, can you find out how many more times I have to come on as a substitute to break the club record? Mm-hmm. It was a disaster. It was a total disaster. I would accept a plea of mitigation to some extent on behalf of the board because it came at the time when obviously they lost a lot of money in the ITV digital fiasco. But it was no excuse. I thought it was going to end in tears about day two. We were talking just as we always do and around the club and one director said to me, he said, it'll all be all right once we found out how he works. And I thought to myself, no, no, how he finds out how we work. Yeah. And they were, and the directors the first day were all waiting to get their photographs taken with him and they were far more concerned about it. Without doubt, the lowest moment of, of that I've ever been involved in with Watford was a complete fiasco at the back end of that season. You know, we were on the we were safe. We were on the road to nowhere, and I think it was about a month from the end of the season. We were away at Stockport, who had been relegated with games to spare. I mean, they'd been they were down from Christmas really, 
and they've got very few players except a few kids. They'd been relegated yonks whack and we managed to get beat up there. Mm. And uh, Viali came out and said, difficult place to come and play this, you know. It ended in tears and, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an era that you, you, you really need to draw a veil over. Was, was it as simple, Mike, as all the directors or, or those involved in the recruitment process literally just having stars in their eyes? I think so. It's the effect that it had on, on, the, on the infrastructure of the whole club. Because throughout, one of the great things about Watford and, and one of the things where the, the supporters were so good, and I, I mentioned Helgerson, if you were a youngster playing your first two or three games for Watford, you would never, ever be found lacking for support from the, from the supporters. They give you all the support, all the encouragement. Yeah, they won the Youth Cup twice, but you know the youth setup at Watford was one of its proudest joys, and you know that that was effectively ended when you know we signed the Bathshire Fusiliers and a few other grossly overpaid people who had any idea at all. And and the other thing was that we we scrapped the system where basically you were rewarded for success if you talked to people in the team that came through the divisions you know a lot of they they earned a lot of money through the bonuses which was great goal scoring if attendances went above a certain figure the money went in the pool get through matches without yellow cards and things like that that all went and those were the principles on which the club was founded and and on which the club had had its success you know i, I look at it now and i think i'm not sure because the youth, the, the youth setup was so crucial. Just think through, you know, I would challenge any Watford supporter to name the strongest 11 who started at the club and it would be a very, very strong side, would take on any, any, any club in the country. While we're on bad managerial decisions, Mike, this is another one that fascinates me because I was just really hitting my straps as a Watford supporter at this stage, was, was Graham's replacement, Dave Bassett, and that was another catastrophic decision, as it turned out. Everyone that I speak to speaks very highly of Dave Bassett, but it just wasn't the right fit for Watford. What the heck went on there? Two things I'd say about that. One, it was Elton on a whim and he did it too quick. Because if you remember, Graham left for Aston Villa at the end of a season. And that would have or should have given the board time to have a good think. They could have easily taken three or four weeks before they brought somebody else in. But also... Look at the managers who have been at clubs for a long period of time. It's a thankless task going in off the back of them. Not only do we have Bassett at Watford, and it was the only failure of his of his, of his managerial career. Think of David Moyes having to replace Alex Ferguson. Think of Ure Emery having to replace Arsene Wenger. If you go through them, it's the one job you wouldn't want. Somebody successful, somebody who's left their fingerprints all over the football club. And do you think that impacted on Bassett's decisions, Mike? One of the ones that I remember, and I might be misremembering, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but he dropped Tony Coton, didn't he, quite regularly for, for Mel Reese, if I'm right. And do you think that was part of him trying to out with the old Graham's gone, those players, and he, and he overcompensated perhaps? I think the, the way I would describe it is he went for revolution rather than evolution. Hmm. Um, bless him, Mel was lovely. I'm very, it was very fond of Mel, and what happened to Mel was an absolute tragedy. Um, but Coton was one of the great goalkeepers, and history will show him as that. You know, you start at the back with somebody loud and noisy. It hopefully, you know, you build from there. And then, of course, we had Trevor Senior, who for whom it didn't work, and, and various others that came and just didn't cut it. But again, a lot of it was down to the fact it all happened far too quick. And that's the one thing I would say, and I've said it when I was asked years ago by a couple of quite high up people in the football club, I said, why could we not have waited a month and thought it through? Because unlike this day and age, there was a clear closed season. You know, yeah. you, you had basically the months of May and June. More, more happy memories than not, though, Mike, when it comes to, to Watford, I think. And obviously, for, for me... Your voice is absolutely synonymous with with those videos, with those end of season videos. 
what what's it what's it like doing that? Because they already seem like a bygone age, don't they? Well, I, some of them I did live. I did some of them actually, you know, with the microphone up in the in the, in the gantry, and then, then the matches were edited, and others you you did afterwards. And one or two incidents, particularly, it, it got quite interesting. As for about four or five years, I worked for radio from one side of the ground, and the television pictures were coming from the other. <laughs> and I, I remember a, a journalist saying to me. He thought I'd completely lost the plot. And so um, I was doing the TV and I just said, so Watford, from left to right, as we get underway, <laughs> left to right, you've gone mad. <laughs> but, but it was something to give people a, a, a souvenir of very special moments because, you know, there were other things that went on that got, that got the public close to the players. You think of things like kit sponsors, where you had the opportunity to sponsor a player's shorts or his goalkeeping gloves or whatever, and you paid so much. And at the end of the season, there was a kit sponsors evening when you actually went and sat and spent a couple of hours with with, with your player. And so they were great souvenirs. You know, they sold very, very well. And I sometimes think to myself, Whatever happened to that commentator who was doing that all those years ago? <laughs> I used to laugh watching the video, certainly in the 90s, because it felt like I was punishing myself, really, because uh, as good as the 80s was, the 90s wasn't much cop, was it? What are your memories of that that time? It was mine camp, wasn't it, really? <laughs> we were lucky to be... A, no, I mean, we were lucky to have a football club, yeah. given yeah. what went on. And then it was a question of... I remember one senior guy sing, uh, walked past me one day on a Saturday saying, singing, where has all the money gone? But the other thing is we were kept alive by the fact we were able to bring in some young players and we were able to do some good business at the lower end. Let's not forget, uh, God rest his soul, he was a very good friend of mine and it's sadly he died just a few weeks ago. Glenn Roder managed to find Kevin Phillips. Yeah, It was a case of Watford keep making ends meet by doing things like that. And yeah, we had some good young players. But again, it was all the foundations that Graham had put in. I mean, he was great for me in my career as well. He was incredibly supportive. Fair amount of mischief as well. I mean, I don't mind telling the story. There's a couple of stories. I was in Watford one Thursday afternoon with a lady friend from Ireland. And I was just showing her around and we sat and had a coffee. And a couple of the players walked past and I thought no more about it. Introduce the two players in question. Go to see Graham the next day to do a Friday interview, which I've done to hundreds of them during the course, you know. And there had been the story of the week had been, and it doesn't matter who it was, it was one of the front players, one of the leading players had been fighting an injury battle all week. So, first question to Graham is totally innocuous. Graham, can we just start? What's the latest on? Please. He looked me in the eye said, You've got a nerve. You come down here week after week, you ask me questions and you expect me to answer them. Well, he said, this week is different. Who is she and why have I not been introduced? <laughs> Exit one complete wreck of a, of a broadcaster. On the way, in, the, in one of those seasons in, in the second division, the decision, uh, we were playing in the northwest somewhere. Uh, forget where it was, either Preston or you know, Preston or somewhere up there. And so, what the club did was they they laid it on a special train, to take the supporters up to the game, with two empty coaches on the way up. And the two empty coaches were for the players to come back with the supporters. And Graham thought it'd be a very good idea to have a bit of a you know to meet the the the, the diest of the diehards, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, brilliant. Well, it was, <laughs> except they lost four nil. <laughs> no, wait for it, wait for it. No, wait, wait for that, wait for it. I'd, I'd spoken to Graham. I'd done the interview with Graham, so I got on the train and everybody got on the train. Anyway, all that. Next, uh, next thing is the train pulls out. The door between the two carriages where the supporters, where the players are, and the supporters is um, shut and doesn't move at all. We get into Watford, and you, you, you lads both know Watford Junction. Yeah. So we all get out and go underneath the. Um, little tunnel up to pick up our cars to go home and I thought to myself I recognise that voice and he was still giving them what they were worth in a huddle on platform 7 <laughs> 15 minutes after the special train had gone 
remember saying to Blissett, I said, what did he say? He said, I gave up what he did when he said it for the eighth time. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I did my first game for Eurosport, I did the, the front, my first World Cup was 98 in France. You know, it's typical Graham. And it's like my first game I did. I did. And you can imagine for me, that was an enormous occasion. I got a text from him seconds afterwards. He cared about everybody, everybody involved in the club. And when he came back the second time, it fell to me to do the first interview with him. Everybody was wondering, how is he? Because obviously he'd been battered by what had gone on with England and, and, and Wolves. Yeah. And we all remember the first time he came down when Les Simmons addressed him, shall we say, in colourful language when he and Elton walked out onto the pitch <laughs> to have a look at it. And then got Graham down. They were going to spend the morning at the football club. And then they were going to, uh, after that, go up to what is now the Hilton, but in those days it was really the only hotel anywhere near Watford, and meet the rest of the board over lunch, and they hoped to do the deal. So they, anyway, Les sees them walk on the pitch and grabs his megaphone from the ground from his hut, and uh, shall we say welcomes them in no holes barred. So <laughs> it fell to me to ask Graham to do the first interview with Graham when he came back, and we were, everybody was sort of, how is he going to get on? So I thought, how am I going to deal with this? And I said to Graham, and bear in mind, this is live. I said, welcoming committee, pleased to see you, are they? And he, looked me straight in, he looked me straight in the eye and he said, yes, he says, Mr. Simmons has learned a lot of new words while I've been away and started laughing. What, was there any concern, Mike, when he came back? It's a phrase I can use, you know, he came home and I think yeah. he needed to come home. The best thing that happened to him was to come home. He used to say that in, in his early days as manager, he said, the, the strangest thing happens to me is that I can go to my local greengrocer and I can go in and, and get a pound of potatoes and the greengrocer will walk out to me and say, morning, Graham, what can we have? What, oh yeah, what are you having? He said, most of them have said that they'll go in and the manager's like, yeah, yes, that's what's it. What the bloody hell are you doing, Saturday? He needed it. But nonetheless, again, he, he proved that he had no peer and his, in his love for the club. They gave him the freedom of the borough and he said that, you know, and that meant he could round up sheep in the high street, something that he'd been doing for years. Mm-hmm. And in all the years I worked with him, only once, and it just said the mark of the man. Only once, we did interviews on good days and bad days, and it was always the same. But only once in all the years I worked with him did he ask me to stop an interview halfway through. That was at Wembley after the game against Bolton. I didn't need to ask him why. I just looked in his eyes. What he did, not just for the team, but for the club, and I'm, I'm, and I'm striking a difference between the two. Everything that the club did, the family enclosure, the, everything, vice president's club, all had the, the hallmarks of Graham on it, and no other manager that Watford has ever had had such an influence off the field. Is there any way on earth, Mike, that if Bobby Moore, for example, had taken over instead, we'd be sat here having anywhere near the same sort of conversations about, about Watford and your connection with them and what you've been and seen and done with them. It was up to others. I'm quite how Graham stood me for 20 years, I don't know. <laughs> what, I'm, what, what, what I'm getting at is, because there was a whole generation of, of Watford supporters who, don't, who knew Graham but weren't really around for what he did. And what I'm getting is just that extraordinary sense of, how important, how integral, and even though those words don't even do it justice, do they, to, to, to what he has created for Watford that still exists today. He is just beyond important, wasn't he? Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Um, I had to do, and they were tough to do, sadly, when he passed away, I had to do a number of tributes. And actually, the, the phrase I used, I said, the Watford family is paying tribute to its patriarch. And that's how it felt. Everything that he did off the pitch as well as on the pitch in his desire to make sure that every single person mattered. You know, the groundsmen mattered, the supporters, the, the disabled supporters. We all mattered because we were all in HMS Taylor. And that was the ship based in Watford, heading, he hoped, for the very top. If you could sum up your time and your your life with Watford what's it mean to you I had the best nearly 30 years of my life involved in my hometown football club and I owe the people there at the time a debt of gratitude 
for believing in me and my, my work that I will never ever be able to repay. You know, what would I knew from 1980 for what, 30 years gave me more joy and happiness than anything else in my life. And I'm not just talking about three o'clock to 4.45 on a Saturday afternoon. Absolutely brilliant to talk to Mike Vince. I think what I like about Mike is the fact that a lot of Watford fans will know who he is without knowing who he is because they'll have listened to all those um, all those videos. We touched on it briefly, but all the Mike, of course, did the um, did the commentary for the end of season videos, and that's what he'll always be to me is the voice of those. And uh, it makes me chuckle a little bit because a lot of those. Um, videos when uh, when I was growing up the, the football wasn't particularly good so he had to make um, it made his job hard but lovely to hear just another person really with uh, just such incredibly fond memories is understating it just just so important emotional evocative um, and they're still so vivid aren't they the memories everything he, you could tell with 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 the warmth of which he spoke with about Graham Taylor probably no surprise there it's the same for all of us but yeah, just fascinating to hear um, a little sort of glimpse behind the curtain, I guess, of of, of those times. And um, yeah, really, really nice to hear from uh, from Mike, one of the uh, one of the one of the big characters around Watford, certainly in the in the eighties in that period. So yeah, thanks ever so much to Mike for his time, and I'm sure we'll uh, I'm sure we'll speak to him again. We're the Orns, you're the Orns. Thank you much to Mike Vince for his time. Thank you much to Adam for his input on the podcast, to Arlo, to DCW, and of course to Mr. Mike Parkin uh, for being part of this podcast. Uh, we'll be back again next Monday with another podcast. Don't worry, we're not going to pick apart another pre-season game, uh, but we're going to have a bit of fun. We're going to have one of our best 11 competitions. Lots of you may sit in the pub and debate the best Watford 11. We have a competition to see who can pick the best 11. More on that on next Monday's podcast. We'll be here for the entire season on a Monday morning, ready for the reaction to the weekend, and on a Thursday morning for a podcast we will do with Adam Leventhal to really get deeper into life around Watford. Thanks so much. Do follow us on social medias, Instagram, Twitter, and on Facebook. Just find at Watford Podcast. Uh, and thank you so much. And do tell your friends, because we're really looking forward to another season. Oh, this sounds so Another season in the Premier League. Come on, you all! The Athletic.